all religions are basically the same. At least that's what I hear a lot. If you're engaged, if you're listening to the culture around you, if you're in discussion with others about Christianity, about religion, uh, interacting in the marketplace of ideas, all religions are basically the same. It's pretty popular. Pretty popular philosophy, a pretty popular perspective. Um, what would you say to that, given the opportunity? All religions are basically the same. I actually, I, I, I see no's. I hear audible no's. I see many noses. Um, all religions are basically the same. I'm going to start by saying, I agree. Maybe you should say that too. I, I agree. On one level, don't leave yet. But Romans chapter 2 teaches that God has written His law on people's hearts. Um, everyone's. So everyone has a sense of right and wrong. Everyone does. As twisted, as perverted, and as messed up as that might be, everyone has a sense of right and wrong. Everyone, every, every religion, maybe that's an overstatement, most religions that I'm aware of have to do with right and wrong, um, have to ha have a teaching that says you should be good, you know, it's good to be good. And in that sense, all religions are the same. We want to be good. We want other people to be good. And then from there, they're not the same, right? And then I'm with you and I say, no, it's not true. Why? Because Jesus changes everything. And we've been learning about how Jesus changes everything in our study of the gospel of Jesus according to John. And here is Jesus entering the scene of human history. But even then, there's more to be said. Because we're learning in John, Jesus didn't come into existence in Bethlehem. Jesus is the pre-existent one who has always been with the Father. He's the eternal one. And then we learn He becomes incarnate. He takes on flesh. He becomes one of us. See, that changes everything. And then, not only does He show up and become one of us, He speaks. And He speaks with, with such clarity that some believe and some are tremendously offended. He, he's the, the ultimate communicator. And so he speaks, and not only does he speak, he speaks in a way that's understandable. And we learn early on in John, he interprets God for us. He explains, literally, he interprets, he exegetes. That is, in particular, like in a scientific way, he interprets God for us. So that we can know, so that we can understand what good actually is. And what kind of good God requires and what God is like, and what God does. You see, Jesus changes everything. Oh, and then Jesus does things. Not only does He speak, He does other things. Authenticating, proving that He really is the one who's the eternal one who's come from heaven. And not only that, He knows people's hearts, frighteningly enough. And not only that, we know that He's headed to Calvary to go 
and do something extraordinary that makes him different from everyone else, which means it's not true that all religions are the same. Jesus changes everything. It's amazing. He is amazing. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 8 of the Gospel according to John, and yet again we're going to see him weigh in on this business of how he's different and how he makes all of the difference. So we're going to look at chapter 8, verses 12 to 30. And if you'd like an outline, you can write down seven specifics about Jesus that everyone needs to know. Seven specifics about Jesus that everyone needs to know. I say everyone needs to know because Jesus speaks in universalistic terms. This is is relevant to everyone, no matter where they live, no matter what their background is, no matter what kind of history they've had. If you're just joining us, or just as a reminder, there's all kinds of conflict by now in Jesus' life and ministry. Off the top of my head, there's roughly about a year left in his life, and the conflict is, is just going to escalate, but it does give him opportunity to bring clarity. The conflict brings clarity about who he really is and who he isn't, okay? And that helps us. Um, We might not like conflict, but this conflict helps us to know who he is, and that's helpful. It's good. It's an opportunity for us to come to know who he really is. How about this? So we can believe in him, so we can trust in him, not in some other Jesus, not in some other Savior. We looked at the first four of these last time, so I'll just quickly review them, uh, and then we'll move on to new territory. I can hardly wait. Specific number one that everyone needs to believe about Jesus is, Jesus is the saving light. He is the saving light. How about verse 12 in chapter 8, where it says, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He's speaking very broadly, perhaps darkly, because the world is in sin. And he says, I am the light that the world needs for guidance, for clarity, to understand. There's more involved, but certainly there are those things involved. And what's interesting, we didn't talk about it last time, is he says, I am the light of the world. We can put the emphasis on the light. We should. We can put the emphasis on the world. We should. But what we didn't do last time, and we should, is put some emphasis on, I am. Because where he's going, we're not going to get there today, but where he is going is he's eventually going to draw all this to a point, and he's going to make it very clear that he's making I am statements. Those are statements that God makes. Those are statements that God makes in the Old Testament and, and it's so well known that he does, maybe not by us, but by his original audience, that they know that they want to kill him. Because he's claiming to be God. Remember? Well, not, we're looking forward. It's kind of hard when I say remember about what we haven't looked at yet. But if you've read John very often, you know that Jesus says, before Abraham was, what? I am He's going there. We're not going to get there today, but he's going there. So I don't think it's reading too much into our text to see that this this has already started happening. I am the light of the world. I'm the one from God. I'm the extraordinary one. I'm actually claiming to be God, the one the world needs. 
a great claim. I'm the one that meets the need. Whoever follows me, synonym for believes in me, as we saw, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, based upon the way it's been used throughout, eternal life. So yeah, lots, if not most religions, use light in a positive. Jesus changes everything. Because I am the light of the world. Not the light only for the Jews, not the light only for people who live in middle America, not the light for any category. I'm the light that everybody needs. Okay, promising life. This changes everything. Well, we're going to go ahead and skip the objection that they have there because we're just reviewing. So number two, specific number two, Jesus is the unmatched testifier. He's the unmatched witness, the unmatched testifier. This is verses 14 to 18, and we're not going to read those verses again because this is review. You can make a, a, a note in your notes if you'd like to that Jesus gave all kinds of objective evidences, um, other eyewitnesses, other testimonies in chapter 5. But here, he refers to himself as the ultimate witness. So it's not either or, it's both and. There are other things that testify to Jesus. It's not only his claims. But here in chapter 8, he's, he's really emphasizing his own claim. If we move on to the next specific about Jesus that everyone needs to know, number three, Jesus is untouchable. Jesus is untouchable. They're seeking to kill him in verses 19 and following. And then in verse 20, if you look there, it says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. That's assuming that they want to arrest him, and they've already been talking about wanting to kill him. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And that's where I got the idea of he's untouchable. Until the hour comes, until the specified hour, the specified time comes, when God's unfolding purpose and plan comes, nothing can happen to him. And as I said last time, that shouldn't surprise us. Based upon anything and everything we know about God, that shouldn't surprise us because there is a plan. History is linear, even though it might have lots of cycles. It's going somewhere, and Christ is at the center of all of it. And if this was planned in eternity past, it shouldn't surprise us that there he is in the temple, and they can't touch him until the hour has come. It shouldn't surprise us, but it should impress us. <laughs> yeah. That's right makes me think of Acts like in Acts 3 and Acts 4. All of the things even that happened to Jesus happen according to the predetermined plan of God. And as I tried to encourage you last week, and I'll encourage you this week, the great thing is, He does what He does for us. In John chapter 10, He's going to say, I will lose none of my sheep. Well, that would make sense because he's the one who does things according to plan and he lays his life down for his sheep and he loses none of them. And so while this is about him, what he does is for us. So it is about us. It's, it's extraordinary. I think that is my favorite word. 
extraordinary, extraordinary, amazing. Not incredible, lacking credibility, extraordinary. Jesus changes everything. He is extraordinary. Nothing can touch him until it's supposed to. Even Isaiah 53 we read earlier today, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Because it's part of a purpose. It's part of a plan. It's a redemptive plan. Okay, specific number four. Final point of review. Jesus is not a way to heaven. Jesus is not a way to heaven. That's because he is the way to heaven. So verse 21, we'll skip 22, 23. Not that they're not all good and important, but we covered them last time. But by way of review, look at, look at verse 24 with me if you would. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's another I am statement, by the way. I am he, unless you believe that I am he. You've got to believe that I'm the one. You've got to believe that I'm the savior. You've got to believe that I'm the eternal one. You've got to believe that I am who I've said I am. And if you don't, it's not that you can take this path or that path or another path. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. This, by the way, makes sense if He is the light of the world. If He's God's only Son. And sometimes we want to argue with that. It's crazy to argue with that. He's saying with absolute clarity in many different ways, in many different times, why not just be excited about that? We had no hope, and now we have hope. Light of the world. But you must believe that He is that one, or you will get what you deserve. You will die in your sins. Jesus isn't a way. Jesus is the way. That's why we have the Great Commission. Think about the logic of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Think about the logic of that. Let's think of it negatively at first. Who does he think he is? Doesn't Jesus know that these people have different beliefs? Go to other nations, not to mention ours. Lots of people believe lots of different things, and they believe them sincerely. And here Jesus is so brazen and bold, let's put it in the negative, so, so audacious as to say, you go to those people and you step over those boundaries. And you make disciples for me. You need to preach the gospel to them. I'm making the assumption that's what he means. You need to tell them about what I've done. And you need to urge them to believe in me for eternal life. Because unless they believe that I am he, they will die in their sins. But it's not negative doing those things. It's not negative if he's the light of the world. You see? Or if it means if he's the light of the world, then we will, then we'll have eternal life. 
That's not negative, that's positive. That's why the Bible would describe those who go as having beautiful, wonderful delivery feet. Like the ancient herald who comes and says, there's good news from the king, victory. There will be feasting, not famine. So we bring good news. But we have to bring the good news. Jesus isn't a way. Jesus is the way, so we have the Great Commission. And by the way, since he's the way, who does he think he is? Matthew chapter 28, where we have the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me. It's because he's the extraordinary one. And we come in his name, not in our name. How did we get, how did we get off track so far? The, I just, I just know it's, it's a, it's a negative. And I, I want to remind you, it's not a negative. It's positive, eternal life. Isaiah 43 uh, is the cross reference. Verses 10 and 11, this is the cross reference that would fit with verse 24. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. He's referring to Jesus as his servant who he has chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, I am he. Before me there was no God, none after me. Besides me there is no Savior. Oh, verse 11. Okay. Enough, enough of that or we will not get done and we'll just review two weeks in a row. <laughs> Specific, number five. Five, six, and seven. Number five. Jesus is the lifted up Son of Man. Jesus is the lifted up Son of Man. If that sounds like it's not very impressive or not very cool, or not very complex, or not very extraordinary. Just wait. He is the lifted up Son of Man. How about verse 25? You, you don't want to miss out on this. Look at verse 25 where it says, So they said to him, Who are you? Who are you? We know they're opponents. Who do you think you are? Who are you? What an awesome question. 25 then says, Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. And before we go any further, perhaps, I don't know for sure, perhaps when he says, what I've been telling you from the beginning, he purposely is, is causing their minds not only to go back to what I've been telling you all along ever since I started teaching, but he is using that loaded word, the beginning word, which we learned about in chapter 1, because he was before even then. He's been talking about how he is the pre-existent, eternal I am one. And he's been telling them about the beginning where he was since his time on earth began. Might be reading too much into it. I don't know. Verse 26. I have much to say about you. Notice they're asking who he is. And he says, I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he, okay, the father who sent me, 
the Son, is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from Him. We're going to keep going in a second, but for now, we just need to kind of absorb verse 26. Who is Jesus? He's the one who is sent by the Father, and He's the one who is sent by the Father, and He declares to the world what He's heard from the Father. How about that? I'm sent from God. He's been talking about this all along. He doesn't speak on his own authority. I'm sent from God and I'm sent here to declare and I'm here to declare to the world. Again, think breadth. Think unless you believe in him, you will die in your sins because he is the one sent from the Father. And who is he sent to? A little minority group? No, he's sent to the world. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Okay, here we go. This is where we see this the lifted up Son of Man. How about verse 28? So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, we'll come back to it, then you will know that I am He. Okay, I am He. I am the lifted up one, and I am the Son of Man one, if you will. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. But let's get comfortable with what He's saying and to see how extraordinary it is. This is going to make more sense, he's saying, but it's going to make more sense when you have lifted up the Son of Man. Okay, Son of Man, broken record here, I know, but I've even seen some of you who are new today. Son of Man, Old Testament title, big, huge, loaded, powerful title, not emphasizing his humanity. The Son of Man, that's from Daniel chapter 7 emphasizing his messiahship that he is the king he is the messiah according to daniel chapter 7 who will rule and reign forever and by the way to rule and reign forever you have to be eternal so son of man is borrowed from the old testament official designation not emphasizing humanity if anything well for sure his messiahship he's the king he's the anointed one if anything i would even argue it would emphasize his deity because he reigns forever so it's this huge magnificent title we'll have an altar call at the end for all sunday school teachers who've said i'm probably included in the list when you see son of god it's deity son of man it's humanity we're going to have a repenting service afterward we're all growing, we're all learning, it's okay to repent. He, he says, when he says son of man, there's a reason why our translators typically would capitalize that. Because it's that official messianic title. He's the king! He's the one! Even our context supports that. Because what do you do with, at least in the ancient world, what do you do with kings? Put them down? Lower them? When they're legitimate kings, when they're the ultimate kings, they're the waited for kings, the ones who deliver you, the ones who provide for you, the ones who take care of you, the ones who are extraordinary. They're high and lifted up. They're to be exalted. 
They're to be above. They're to be seen. They're to be put on display. Yeah, that's him. He is the son of man. And the son of man should be high and exalted and lifted up. So this, this makes perfect sense. But there's irony, right? There's irony. There's strangeness. Because when the Son of Man is lifted up, He's lifted up where? He's lifted up to the cross. And the irony is, no king... No legitimate king, not to mention the ultimate long-awaited good king, should be crucified. It doesn't get more wrong or twisted or upside down. We know that this is what he's talking about because in John chapter 12, verse 32, it says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33 of chapter 12, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Lifted up, death. John chapter 3, verse 14, And Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So we know, he's ta- we know he's talking about that. So for him, the road to exaltation is actually through crucifixion. And it's, just, it's, it's an irony of the cross. It was ironic today. And of course, I had the, the, the preview. I knew what I was going to be talking about, at least for the most part. We were singing today, right? About the greatness of the cross and the greatness of Calvary and our God dying. And you go... That's not right. It doesn't make sense. Christianity is different from every religion. Where it did please the Father to crush the Son, which is unthinkable. Because He is loving us, sending His Son to do everything right on our behalf and then to be treated as if he did everything wrong on our behalf and then to be raised from the dead on our behalf and we're going to get to that as well. There, there, there is no religion like it that says to everyone, you can't do it, it's impossible. The only way of salvation is by what God will do. It's amazing. It's amazing. If you, if you would just jot down in your margin, if you're a note taker, um, in verse 28, Isaiah 52, 13 and 14. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now today we read Isaiah 53 and it talked about his servant. It's talking about Jesus. 52, which is related to 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then it goes on to say in verse 14 that his appearance was also marred beyond human semblance. And then we get to 53. Substitutionary atonement. This is all part of the plan. This is what Isaiah is talking about. 
it really, truly is staggering to the mind. And I, and I hope stirring to your heart. God love me as a sinner like this, to do this for me, that, that Jesus did this. And so we say, oh, the glory of the cross. Specific number six of seven. Jesus is the one who always does what pleases the Father. Jesus is the one, italics added, the one who always, italics added, does what pleases the Father. Which, there's irony, right? He's going to be the lifted up one. But he's the one who always does what pleases the Father. That, 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 that is nonsense apart from him voluntarily being a substitute in place of. This is extraordinary. How about verse 29? Here we go. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. We know the exalted thing is crucifixion. And here, God doesn't leave Him alone, because He always does the things that are pleasing to Him. This is why Jesus is called the righteous. Because to be righteous, you have to always do what pleases God. Jesus is called elsewhere the righteous. He always does what is pleasing to God. This makes Jesus entirely different from everyone else. Everybody. No one else can say that they always do what pleases God. It makes them unique. This is why, though it's not developed here, this is why the apostles will pick up on this and they will further develop and explain the theology of substitution, of justification. This is why the Apostle Paul, in chapter 5 of Romans, verses 12 and following, can talk about how we're all in Adam because of what he did, because he didn't always live to do what pleases the Father. But through the action of the one, Jesus, the righteous action, the many can be justified, declared righteous. The Apostle Paul didn't invent that reality. It comes from Jesus, the one who always did. That's why Romans chapter 5 talks about his action of obedience. It's fascinating. The reason we can be declared righteous before the court of God is because of this, this reality right here. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And that will include the cross at its apex, at its high point. 
See, this is why Romans 4, 5 is so, can, can be said that, that God justifies the ungodly. See, God justifies Pat who is ungodly in and of himself because Jesus, Pat's substitute, always does what is pleasing and always did what was pleasing, even to the point of death on a cross. I have to tell you a little secret. The sermon title is called Always Pleasing God. I was baiting you, wondering if you would read that and think about yourself. Kind of sounds good, doesn't it? Oh, this is great. The pastor's going to talk about us today. Because we always do what pleases God. Well, maybe we don't, but that's what we want to do. And so I'm really looking forward to the seven steps. Right? Because we are always pleasing God. Now, that's a good desire. We want to please God. But the reality is, Jesus and Jesus alone, because unless you believe that He is who He says He is, you will die in your sins. Jesus is the one who always does what is pleasing to his Father. That's why you need him in your place. It's awesome. Ask a friend today. Say, well, the pastor's sermon title today was Always Pleasing God. Take a guess on, on what kind of things he talked about. give more money. I mean, whatever, you know. By the way, Jesus, after this text, not today, but in John 8, he is going to talk about how we please him as those who belong to him, okay? So it's not either or, but we don't want to get the cart before the horse. Otherwise, we have a different religion, not Christianity, but he is going to talk about obedience, I always do the things that are pleasing him. That's just amazing. Now, one more thing before we leave this behind. I want you to pay really close attention to the logic of of verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He's, He's with me. He has not left me alone. Here's the logic I wanted you to see. He's not left me alone. Here's why he hasn't left him alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You could translate it, because I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So the father doesn't leave the son alone. Why? Because he always does what is pleasing. He's perfectly righteous. He doesn't leave him alone, and he's talking about ultimately crucifixion because he's going to be lifted up. So... The Father will not leave the Son crucified. Jesus absolutely, positively cannot stay dead. It can't happen. It's an impossibility for Jesus to be crucified and to stay in the grave. That is what the text is teaching. He can't stay dead. How could he not stay dead? If Pat was crucified, Pat could stay dead. 
In fact, it would make logical sense for Pat to stay dead because Pat doesn't always do what pleases the father. So death is a fair result. But you see, Jesus always does what is pleasing to the Father. Therefore, he is righteous and it would be unrighteous for the righteous to stay dead. It can't happen. It needs to not happen. This is why we have texts like 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. He became one of us, talking about Jesus. And then it says, vindicated by the Spirit. It's the same word for justified. Justified by the Spirit. And he's talking about the resurrection. It's Jesus' justification, Jesus' vindication, in that he cannot stay dead because he's the righteous. I'm getting excited about this because we don't tend to think in these terms. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? There's lots of reasons, but one reason was he had to be raised from the dead. Why did he have to be raised from the dead? He had to be raised from the dead because of who he is and because of what he did. He always did what pleased the Father. Excuse me, vindicated by the Spirit. Man, I can't wait for Easter. I'm going to think about Easter differently. I'm going to re-preach the sermon is what I'm going to do. Vindicated by the Spirit. I like what the Reformation Study Bible said in the notes, probably on 1 Timothy 3.16 if I recall. By overturning the guilty verdict, the resurrection proved that he lived a life of perfect righteousness. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's why I read it. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. It was not possible for him to be held by it, it referring to death. It wasn't possible. It was impossible for Jesus to stay dead because of what he did. Isn't it good? Jesus changes everything. He changes absolutely everything. Oh, by way of application, if you are united to Christ by faith, you're united to Him, you're in Christ, it is impossible for you to stay dead. But not because you always do what pleases Him. But because Jesus always does what pleases Him. Yeah, you know? That's why we took victory, right? This is... I was getting so excited about this, just studying, just working through the passage and trying to sort things out, and I started getting nervous. Because I don't ever want to be the pastor who hears people say, I've never seen that before, pastor, because it's not there. Okay, that's not an exciting thing. <laughs> so I'm like, I... I Where are the commentaries? (laughs) And I was relieved to conclude, oh, okay. This isn't anything new. This isn't an Omaha Bible Church thing. This isn't a a Pat thing. Um, Impossible for him to stay dead. Okay, number seven. Final specific about Jesus that we really need to know. 
Jesus is the object of faith. Jesus is the object of faith. Verse 30 says, And he was saying these things. Excuse me, I misread. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. In chapter 6, chapter 7, many are no longer believing in him. They didn't like what he was saying. And Jesus keeps teaching the same thing. And now many are believing in him. He is the correct, the proper object of faith. We don't believe in belief. We don't believe in ourselves. We believe in Jesus. Believe means trust. It means rest. It means to have confidence in. And stop and think about this. I, I heard someone on the, on the news just, just this past week um, talking about how... Uh, no, I'm not going there. I'm going to get off track. I might, but I have to think it through. <laughs> Many believed in him. It means they trusted in him. They were resting in him, not in themselves or in their religious leaders or in their doing what pleases God. We're just coming off of the heels of Jesus is the one who's going to be lifted up. Jesus is the one who will not be abandoned by his Father. Jesus is the one who always does what is pleasing to his Father. It makes all the sense in the world then. It is logical. It is rational. It is good. It makes sense to believe in him. To have faith. To trust in the one who is trustworthy. It just makes sense. Just makes sense. Let me encourage you this morning. As you are a believer in Jesus, let me encourage you to continue to believe in Jesus. You have found the right object of faith by God's grace. And if you're believing in something or someone else, you're going to die and stay dead. Jesus couldn't stay dead. Because Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who always did what was pleasing to his Father. So as lovingly and as kindly and as compassionately and as thoughtfully as I can, I want to echo the Apostle Paul's command, believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. For ultimate hope, hope means confidence, not I hope so. We should pray and we should be done for this morning. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the fact that 
all of this is just making more and more sense. The more we look at it, the more we think about it, the more we, re- we read other passages, and the more we learn. Thank you that Jesus is indeed a wonderful Savior who didn't stay dead but was raised from the dead, who even ascended and who claims us as his own. May we, according to your perfect grace even, by the power of the Spirit, not look to other things uh, as saviors, including ourselves, but that we would look at the one who is worthy, the one who is worthy of being the object of faith. May we find ourselves confiding in Christ, the one who is worthy of our confidence. And then encourage us to want to do the right thing, to please God and honor God because we belong to God through Jesus, his son. Indeed, you're kind to us. Thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.